In July 2020, tens of thousands of passionate and committed people from around the globe will convene at the 23rd International AIDS Conference. This gathering among the world's largest conferences will happen during a critical year when global goals for the fight against HIV AIDS come due. In this podcast, we'll be talking to a diversity of inspiring guests. They have been and remain at the very forefront of the ongoing fight against HIV AIDS, both at home and abroad. Hello, and welcome to the AIDS 2020 podcast. My name is Janet Fleischman, and I'm a senior associate at the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. The AIDS 2020 virtual conference wrapped up last week, so we wanted to reflect on some of the issues raised there through another conversation with a leading voice in the global AIDS movement. Today's episode features Dr. Linda Gale Becker, the deputy director of the Desmond Tutu HIV Center at the University of Cape Town in South Africa, CEO of the Desmond Tutu HIV Foundation, and former president of the International AIDS Society, among many other important roles. In this episode, Linda Gale reflects on the severe impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, both on the lives of adolescent girls and young women, and potentially on the important momentum of HIV prevention programs for this vulnerable population. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll enjoy her insights. We are honored to have you join us today. I wanted to see if you could give us a little bit of a sketch of what is happening now in terms of the COVID crisis in South Africa, in Cape Town perhaps specifically, and what impact you're seeing on adolescent girls, young women, and the AGYW and HIV programming. Yeah, so um, you're quite right. The COVID pandemic has really sort of struck in South Africa since early March. We had a very stiff lockdown phase where really very little was allowed to happen. And I think in that early phase of finding ourselves, all services were prevented and apprehended in the panic, I suppose, of getting together a plan for COVID. Of great concern was just what that would mean to what I consider and what I think subsequently we've come to understand are essential health services, which include tuberculosis, HIV and STIs, of course. And so we have, as a country, I think, begun to put our heads again above the parapet, as it were, to say, well, how do we bring these services back into the fold safely and in such a way that people will still feel protected, that we won't harm the pandemic response. But I think more and more there's realization that this is urgent because the HIV and TB epidemics rage on in the background. And of course, caught up in that is the sexual reproductive health more broadly and other aspects of programming for adolescent girls and young women, which of course includes contraception. So we know that this is really important. We know from other epidemics following Ebola, we know that there was a surge of unintended pregnancy after that experience. And I I think there is a lot of concern on the ground that we may see ourselves not only on the back foot, but actually retreating when it comes to HIV and TB because of the COVID epidemic. 
I wonder if you could speak for a minute to some of the other issues that you've been focusing on that were putting adolescent girls and young women at risk of HIV before this pandemic and that are already being or likely to be exacerbated by COVID. So the school closure issues and potential dropouts, gender-based violence, reproductive health services, access to contraception, transactional sex. Can you speak to the range of issues that have always been at the core of HIV prevention for adolescent girls and young women, and now are again in stark relief because of COVID? Correct. So I think every single one of the drivers, there is deep potential for COVID to exacerbate. You could argue, you know, maybe given that for six weeks, alcohol was prohibited. Maybe there was a reduction in alcohol-induced uh, gender-based violence, but that now is, you know, lifted. And certainly, there was a lot of concern during the severe lockdown that, with communities being tightly kept at home, we could see a surge in gender-based violence. I think those data will more definitely emerge over time. I know that there was concern around the world about this as a, as a concept. I think what is flawed during these times, and, and this is the difficulty, is also data doesn't flow very well. So we have the confounder that, you know, we have fears about this, we are concerned about it, but we may not, in fact, have very good monitoring of the situation at the time. And so I think it'll it'll be over a few days to weeks or, you know, maybe even months as experiences of individuals come in the door that we will get a better handle on, for example, gender-based violence. But I think there is a, there's a reasonable um, concern that, you know, with communities locked down, a number of different drivers could have been exacerbated. And I think you've alluded to some of them. So the first is just the crowding, the, the closeness of people who would ordinarily have gone their merry way now being confined to spaces. So I think that's the one. Secondly, we know this has had a terrible consequence on people's ability to create income. Uh, much of our income, our, our employment is informal in a lot of these communities. So people generate their own incomes. And of course, all of that was put on hold. So everything from hairdressing salons to pop-up spas were shut down. And so I think the economic implication is huge, which leads to, again, violence, gender-based power struggles, and of course, transactional sex as a potential outcome. Another driver, of course, is just access to services and access to help and assistance. And of course, we know that that was also put into a scarce commodity. And even now, although some of those services are beginning to re-emerge, there's a crowding out by COVID. So even if you wanted to get to the clinic, you know, to get your DMPA for this month, you might find a, quite a hostile clinic who is overrun with worrying about COVID um, and perhaps less open to friendly sexual reproductive health services. So we've seen, for example, we put our, our mobiles never stopped. Our mobiles have been on the ground offering the usual services that we do, but we've seen an enormous drop in uptake. So even though we've allowed the service and the access, people are confused about what they're allowed to do, how to actually take up those services. And of course, fear drives a lot of people underground as well. 
So I have no doubt that a, a number of these drivers are, are, are going to be exacerbated. And I wanted to ask you about that in terms of what you're seeing in public sector clinics. You had referred to the fact that people are afraid to go for the same reasons they're afraid all over the world now. What are you seeing, if anything yet, about the uh, adolescent girls and young women seeking services or being treated at facilities or having knowledge and information or seeking knowledge and information about COVID? What are you seeing in terms of public facilities and AGYW? Yeah, I think it's early days to really feel like, you know, whether, and I think, again, the data will start to flow now to see what impact it's been in terms of statistics. Our feeling is that those services that are completely essential. So, you know, I've got to go to my antenatal care because I'm now 28 or 35 weeks. You know, those individuals are certainly turning up, um, showing up. But even there, I think there are concerns about retention. We are offering PrEP as we have been doing before to, for example, our antenatal care services. And we're seeing quite a severe drop off of retention postnatal, for instance. So, you know, I did this when I had to be in the service, but now that the the sort of necessity is a little bit alleviated, I'm, I'm lost to the services. And what we've seen of late is an increase in the number of people who want their drugs couriered to them at their home. So I think a, a nice indication that maybe in the future, this kind of modality for healthcare delivery is going to be perhaps one that will be more normal and easier to do. And people will, you know, maybe feel like it's something we could do longer term, which I think is in itself exciting. I've seen some social media saying telemedicine is here to stay now because of COVID. And I suspect this kind of postal Healthcare is also going to be here to stay following this experience. Are you concerned that the focus on AGYW through DREAMS, through the Global Fund, through that She Conquers could be diminished because of the COVID crisis? And if so, tell us what your concerns are and what you think needs to happen. Yeah, I mean, I think we just had a really nice critical mass growing in this regard. There was momentum building and, you know, I'm sure you experiencing the same thing. I must hear COVID five million times in a day, (laughs) you know, and other healthcare priorities have just receded into the background entirely. So I think just people's attention has been completely diverted from the issue of adolescent girls and young women. So we're competing with a monster here. And I will be very surprised if when the monster begins to recede, as I hope it will do, we'll just pick up where we left off. I mean, I I honestly don't believe that. I think we'll have to try and regather that momentum again. And I'm worried, you know, that it's going to be harder to do the second time around. And sadly, if we have lost a lot of ground, I guess that'll be the narrative to try and make up that ground again and and think what the opportunities might be. Of course, the other big one here is schools are in disarray. And, you know, I think there was really nice momentum gathering around what could be done in schools. How do we think about sexual reproductive health services within school? And I think that came along with the Global Fund program 
and with dreams. And of course, now schools are a place where one goes very nervously and reluctantly. So again, all of that groundwork will have to be rebuilt because I don't think it's just going to pause. I think it's going to recede and we're going to have to remind people of the ground we made in order to get there again. Obviously, the priority now is COVID and everyone's looking Mm. at that and trying to manage Mm. that crisis. Mm. What messages would you have for DREAMS, for the Global Fund, and for the South African government so that they don't lose all the momentum on this very vulnerable population, which is now, as you've said, even more vulnerable because of the the COVID crisis and realities? What do you want them to do now so that some of that ground isn't lost? Well, I think there's been some great initiatives to put out in, you know, sort of grant opportunities to people uh, to say, how can you quickly illustrate how you can integrate COVID into your services? And I think more of that kind of incentive. So people are in a way incentivized to say, how do I get out of this paralysis of fear and move forward? You know, how do I get to this new norm? Um, and in a way, encourage people to do that. So that would be the one. The second one is obviously work like you're doing now to try and understand the situation, get a handle on it, if only so that if and when this happens again, we're maybe a little better prepared. What could we have done differently during the lockdown? Did we need a lockdown of everyone? You know, Could we have done this in a sort of stratified way? Was there a place where you could have still allowed children to go to school, but, you know, protected the elderly. What other kind of assistance can we put in place for young people through this time? So I do think, you know, encouraging people like me to think of innovative ways to do this in a systematic way and monitor it, I think is useful. So that's something I think the Global Fund and PEPFAR could think about is how do they get their partners on the ground to specifically address this, incentivize a push in this direction? Because I feel like we went into a pause mode, you know, when what what's the indication when the pause should stop? How do you go back? A few of us were really putting our heads together to say, how do we bring back a focus on the prevention of mother to child, particularly in young adolescent women, where we know there are terrible gaps in making sure that young women don't transmit virus to their unborn children. First of all, make sure that every pregnancy is intended. But if intended, make sure that people have PMTCT access. And we were trying to figure out that catch-up plan In the same way now, almost certainly COVID would have undermined that further. So what is that catch-up plan and how do we hit the ground running the minute we can? And I would argue we should do it right now already with resources to say, how do we do that catch-up and then keep the momentum going? But I think a few of us need to put our heads together to say, what will that narrative look like? How do you tell the story in a different way? So it doesn't just sound like, you know, you just fell off your soapbox and you climb back onto your soapbox and carried on where you'd left off. I do think we need to say, what is the new narrative on this? Maybe it's about how fragile our services are and, you know, that they don't withstand something like this. How do we make them even stronger and more robust that they survive this kind of crisis 
in the future. We have an unwritten law that sexual reproductive health services must never be undermined under any circumstance, you know, and we have ways that when something like this happens, when a tsunami comes, when, I don't know, when we have the next hurricanes, it doesn't stop the flow of these absolutely critical services. And we have a way to reach these adolescent girls and young women regardless. Right. And all of that will presumably be a factor important for the ongoing response to COVID. But of course, the broader issue of trying to prevent HIV infection in that population requires meeting their broader needs. And I feel like we we learning while we're sailing at the moment, you know, which which is fine, but then let's make sure that the next time around we we're ready come what may. We now need to say what are the things we know worked. Then we're gonna have to say what if any of those need to be adapted because of COVID. So what are they? How do we have to adapt them if at all? And I'm sure there are some there that need some tweaking. And then how do we take them to scale? the minute we can and have a plan for scale. And that's going to take resources and organization. It's going to have to be a military type operation to, you know, get it out there. But I would think in a way there isn't going to be time for fiddling anymore, for trying this or trying that. I think we now need to say, what are those key things that we think really need to happen How do we adapt them for the new normal? And then how do we get them up to scale and go and not waste time? Now, the when we go, I think is going to have to be decided in country. But I think there needs to be a bit of a push from the powers that be or agencies, whatever, you know, that we can't allow time to amass Because every day, you know, as I've said so many times, we're not moving forward with this thing. We are absolutely sliding back. So, you know, it's how far do you want to have backslidden before you turn the bus around? And that's going to be up to all of us, I think, in that regard. So that's what I would think we need to do in sharp order. So if you were to take a stab at what those key ingredients are, what would you say? So I definitely think bringing services to young people where they are, and that may be that they're in school, it might mean mobiles, it may mean resources in that kind of way. I do think you want to have a community as well as a health facility kind of approach. And I think the community is the capital C here, if anything. So I think it is getting to those young people. I think it is about moving age of consent and all those stupid barriers aside and saying young woman from the age of 12 and up before that, they need information, they need support and and protection. From 12 and up, they need comprehensive sexual reproductive health services that are clear and, you know, unambiguous and adolescent tailored. And then, you know, we need to reach them wherever we can in their communities. So it'll be a mix of mobiles, pop-ups in school, wherever schools will allow that. And it may be this kind of tele postal service type approach maybe, but I think we need to embrace that as soon as possible. And then of course there does need to be community dialogue, but I see that, you know, that has to always be out there in the, 
stratosphere, but in a way that's sort of harder to construct. But I do think that needs to continue. And all of our gender norming and gender-based violence programs need to continue. But the obvious thing for me is to get services to young women in a way that meets them where their needs are and that are comprehensive, that include all the tools to protect themselves against HIV and pregnancy and protection services that include ensuring that they stay in school. And then finally, you know, the harder one by all means is how do we ensure that they have some kind of future? Um, I think a starting point is that they stay in school, but the next one will be what are some of the economic opportunities for these young women That's a tougher one that I'm not sure, but I think if we can do the first, that at least will give young women the kind of social and health protections they need to reach their potential. I think that's really key in the first go. Do you have specific comments and recommendations to PEPFAR and to DREAMS in terms of their work on adolescent girls and young women? If you're speaking to Ambassador Burks, if you're speaking to the US Congress, what do you want them to know about the importance of dreams and perhaps where it fell short and where it should consider going in the future? Well, my first thing will be, how do we pick up where you left off and do that quickly and get right back to it because I thought it was great that there was that focus. So the first thing is to acknowledge that dreams even existed. You know, I mean, I think that was just fantastic. And, you know, the biggest regret aside from all the death and the anxiety and everything that's gone with COVID is that it interrupted that momentum, you know, but in some ways, maybe it gets us off what had been a bit of a complacency about it to say that was such a rich gift what can we learn from it? What do we take forward? And how do we scale that up and take the learnings and make it count going forward? Thank you for listening to AIDS 2020. Please subscribe and write a review wherever you listen to your podcast so that more people can find us. If you want to find out more about CSIS's research on the global fight against HIV AIDS, go to CSIS.org and look for the Global Health Policy Center program page. To find out more about the AIDS 2020 conference, visit AIDS2020.org.